This is an ABC podcast. Today, Victoria's emergency minister says up to 90,000 people have been displaced so far by the floods of Victoria. We're going to soon head to Shepparton. And rural families in central Queensland are questioning why they're suddenly paying massive council rates and receiving little in the way of service in return. And I've got to pay $84,000 before I feed a cow, before I feed myself, before I pay anyone to come and work. Like, yeah, I'm basically running a paddock of bullets for the council. So I wonder if they want to come up and do some mustering for me. And with fluffy faces and knee-high woolen boots, I'll introduce you to the Australian baby dolls. They're pretty cute. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country. But first, we head to the southeast of the country to the ongoing flood emergency. Things got worse in northern Victoria over the weekend, and there are fears thousands of homes have been affected by some of the worst flooding in decades. Regional towns such as Shepparton, Echuca, Marupna, and Rochester are among the worst hit, and authorities warn flooding could continue along the Murray River for weeks. A number of emergency warnings are in place, and authorities and volunteers have been busily sandbagging and preparing to protect property where they can. For those in areas where the floodwaters have subsided, some remain cut off due to roads being severely damaged or washed away entirely. And our reporter, Warwick Long, is in Shepparton and he's been cut off from the rest of the town by these floodwaters. Warwick, I believe you've just gone down to the shops to get a few supplies. Was there anything on the shelves? Uh, Actually, surprisingly, quite a lot on the shelves today, Sinead, which is a surprise. A lot of communities that have been affected by flooding and the surrounding towns have had a lot of pressure put on them in recent days. And that's going to continue as well. We've seen a lot of pictures of empty supermarket shelves or long waits at pharmacies and so forth. But in my little part of the world, that's the least of our concerns today. Warwick, have you ever experienced a flood event like this before? I was here in 2011, but it was certainly not like this. It was certainly a lot lower than this. And my memories of 1993, I was in a different area of the state. Certainly remember it being wet, but I wasn't around for any of the significant flooding. But the reality is for Shepparton, where I live, is that no one's experienced flooding like this, uh, except for those who can remember 1975. Uh, That's the last event that is comparable. For areas of Echuca, if the warnings and the predicted heights turn out to be true, uh, no one has experienced that in living memory because they're talking about uh, the the worst flood since the 1870s. Um, Members of Rochester had an extraordinarily bad bad flood in 2011, and and, uh, and they've just experienced something worse. A lot of them will tell you that. So uh, this is unprecedented territory for a lot of different people in regional Victoria. And you've got to remember, a lot more people live here now than even those mm. decades past. So so it certainly is a new experience to even more people than that as well. You spoke to the Emergency Services Minister, Murray Watt, earlier on today. What did he tell you about the scale of this disaster in terms of the whole state of Victoria? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, really, the, the role of the Emergency Services Minister. He was in Forbes touring flood-affected regions there after being in Victoria with the Prime Minister uh, just yesterday looking at floods here. He did tell us just the, the sheer scale of what's happening in Victoria right now. The numbers he was quoting to us is seventy to 90,000 people in Victoria have been displaced in some way by this flooding event. They're talking about 34,000 homes in some form of isolation due to the scale 
scale of the flooding event and at least 9,000 homes experiencing some form of inundation. So that's flooding. That's getting flooded at, nine, at least 9,000 homes in Victoria. So when we're looking at figures like this, this is at a scale really unseen since, you know, major bushfire emergencies, which the state is almost more familiar with than, than flooding emergencies. So that gives you some idea of just the sheer scale of people affected so far and obviously much more through friends and family and those close by and uh, those volunteering their time helping out as well it's it's a huge event that is uh, that's going to be with Victoria for some time and exhausting a lot of Victorians we're talking about prime Australian agricultural land here how, how devastating has it been for farm operations when you're presenting country hour today I'm sure you heard from people yeah, certainly so. So this affects a number of different crops in a number of different ways. Victoria, small state, a bit of a powerhouse in agriculture because it's so because it's so close to uh, ports and and the road networks and so forth. So a lot of grain crops, uh, which were looking extraordinary, because Victoria had missed a lot of the serious flooding rains until now that New South Wales had received, and there was some incredible crops looking really, really uh, good, and a lot of them are going to be lost now in northern Victoria. There's something like a million litres of milk being milked a day that uh, is at risk of spoiling because milk tankers simply can't get there to pick them up from uh, dairy farmers at the moment. So they they have to tip that milk out if it uh, goes beyond a certain amount of time or they can't keep enough power up to keep their milk cold in the meantime. So as one dairy farmer put it to us, he's milking for the fun of it at the moment. They right. need to keep milking the cows for animal welfare issues, but nothing can be done with the milk. They've got to tip that out. And that's an enormous financial burden to someone who's already being hit with floods. It's an important time for a lot of orchards in areas like the Goulburn Valley where I am at the moment and other areas in northern Victoria too. So there could be some losses. A lot of uh, that is being quantified at the moment. And orchards, well, yeah, really only hundreds of metres from where I'm sitting talking to you today, Sinead, are covered with water at the moment. I don't think that that brings huge risks to the trees, but it certainly brings disease risks and, and big uh, problems for the crops that will be growing there. So huge concerns everywhere. It will continue like this for some time. There are people along the Murray River that will probably be thinking now they're going to lose some crop and it would look spectacular on a sunny northern Victorian day like it is now. There's just unfortunately a wall of water moving towards them. So explain that wall of water moving towards them because if if you're not familiar with this part of Victoria, it's hard to understand how that network of rivers work. Can you explain that to people? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with the Great Dividing Range. It comes down the east coast of Australia and hooks sort of sideways in Victoria. So what that means is the state's effectively split in two. There's sort of north of the divide and south of the divide. And what that means is if heavy rains, which they have, have fallen through central Victoria and up into the northeast ranges, that charges a lot of what is usually the drier parts of the state and fills catchments really quickly. And because we've had week after week of smaller rain fronts leading up to this massive rain front that came through at the end of last week, uh, the storage has filled. So we've seen storages like Lake Dartmouth fill for the first time since the 1990s. Lake Thompson's about to spill. It's on the other side, but it's about to spill for the first time in 30 years as well. So all of these catchments filled and now they're all flowing and spilling and flowing at huge flood levels towards the Murray River. So the Goulburn is a really big supplier of water to the Murray-Darling system and that's in massive flood and it's going to meet the Murray near Echuca. We've had the Campaspe, a smaller system, 
that has spilled and had a massive flood go through Rochester. It's heading north to Echuca. It's going to, and it's hitting there right now. Then you've got the Loddon and the Avoca, which similarly move towards north and they go near Kerrang, which is another town that's going to be under significant pressure in the coming days as well. In fact, the Avoca usually doesn't link up with the Murray-Darling Basin. There's some suggestion, though, that there's so much water moving in the system, it may now. So there's a lot of water. As I've just told you, all of it's going towards the Murray. It all hits around towns and it's where those rivers meet that you have those concerns. So Shepparton is where the Broken, the Seven and Castle Creeks and the Goulburn River all meet. Echuca is where the Campaspe has already gone through at its peak flood level. But then in the coming days, they're going to have the Goulburn River uh, meet at a peak flood there too. So Echuca's under pressure from a couple of different fronts too. And as I mentioned with Kerrang, a lot of water moving there. And Kerrang effectively can become an island cut off from the rest of the state, rest of the world really, as all the water moves around it. And that can continue for a couple of days. And all of that water then turns left and moves towards the uh, South Australia through the Murray system, which has the ability to take more water, but we're still expecting major, moderate to major flooding right along that system as the water moves. I know there are some concerns that there could possibly be a second flood peak. So are they the communities that are most at risk if that was to eventuate? Yeah, and there's also a lot of concern in Northern Victoria at the moment too. And authorities aren't trying to heighten that too much, but it's more just keeping people um, aware. We've got that water moving. And as I said, Echuca is about to have their, their extra water come there. So there's a lot of concern and focus on Echuca at the moment. But we're expecting rain in Victoria again soon. So there's a rain front, front coming to the state that will hit Thursday, Friday. That's expected to bring some rain, nowhere near as much as what was experienced on those days the week before. But the catchments are already wet and floodwaters are already there. So there is some concern. Then there's yet another front coming, Sinead. And this one is actually giving the, 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 the Bureau is giving more warnings about. It's the Sunday rain front into Monday. We're in a, a really tight time where everyone's watching closely as to what this will mean for them, what this will mean for the rivers they're on and what it will mean for the communities downstream. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Thanks to Warwick Long there in Shepparton. And right now you are on Australia Wide with me, Sinead Mangan. We all know the cost of living is going through the roof and we're all paying more for fuel, groceries and even our electricity. But in some parts of Queensland, council rates are also climbing rapidly, particularly in rural areas. One grazier in central Queensland is calling for changes to the rate system after his annual rates bill topped $80,000. Pat Hegney has this report. Lawson Getty's family has lived on his central Queensland cattle property near Shoalwater Bay for over 140 years. He says he loves the rural lifestyle, far away from populated areas. We've managed quite well doing what we do. Um, We sort of take care of ourselves and always have. Given the relative isolation of his 10,000 hectare property, Mr Getty says he's had little to do with the local council in the Livingston Shire. So he was stunned when he opened his most recent rates notice. I was shocked, to tell you the truth. I was, I was, I was a bit flabbergasted. Um, and we got our rates and it had gone up 24%. So it's jumped $16,000. So we're paying around $84,000 a year rate for for Kuduti. Yep. Mr Getty says he's always understood the need for rates, but the most recent payments have him wondering what he's paying for. Yeah, I think if you're in the Shire, everyone's got to pay rates, but it's a bit... 
It's a bit exorbitant. And I've got to pay $84,000 before I feed a cow, before I feed myself, before I pay anyone to come and work. Like, yeah, I'm basically running a paddock of bullets for the council. So I wonder if they want to come and do some mustering for me. So why do we pay rates? Livingston Shire Mayor Andy Island says councils levy rates to fund the provision of local services. He said the calculation of individual rates relies heavily on property valuation. We have what's called a differential rating system. So we have lots of different categories. So there's categories uh, for residential and there's different types. And within each of those categories, a rate in the dollar is applied. So a cents in the dollar is applied. He said this process means it's difficult to keep rates low when valuations increase. The Queensland Valuer-General released its latest land valuations for 30 local government areas in March. Livingston Shire increased by 30.9% overall since the last valuation in 2020, but some areas rose by up to 60%. We did our very best to try and get that rate in the dollar down so the impact wasn't as bad as it potentially could have been for some of those rural ratepayers. But then certainly, um, in order to raise the revenue we need to provide services right across the board, um, those rates in the dollar are what we actually determine we have to charge. Certainly, a, a lot of that was beyond our control. But Mr Geddes says despite his enormous council contributions, his property receives few services. Yeah, we don't get any any services. Like, there's no there's no rubbish service. There's, we look after all our own water and everything like that. We might get our road graded once or twice a year, maybe. Um, I can't remember the last time they carted gravel for the road. He says he's worried rates will continue to climb as agricultural property prices rise. Well, they always seem to go up. I don't know where it stops. If you're running a business, you can't just put the uh, put the price up or no one would go to your shop or your business. Um, and the same thing happens with the council. Like, you can't just use the ratepayers to fill in your black hole. The mayor says he feels sympathy for rural ratepayers as property prices drive rates higher. In, in terms of what you know, those residents get for their money, well, they get rural road maintenance and rural road upgrades. Uh, they certainly don't get charged for water and sewage because it's not connected. And um, you know, clearly, they are able to take advantage of all the services that council offers in terms of community facilities like libraries, uh, town halls, um, you know, outdoor entertainment centres all those sorts of things. So um, I guess comes down to a, a, a choice of where they live. But Ag4CEO CEO Michael Gurren says ratepayers shouldn't be disadvantaged by where they choose to make a living. I don't think people should be disadvantaged because of where they live at all. And whether you choose to live out of town and run a primary production enterprise or whether you choose to live in town and run a coffee shop shouldn't disadvantage you from the perspective of being part of that community and contributing to that community. Mr Gurren says consecutive years of rate rises have taken a toll on rural businesses and the system of basing rates on land valuations is outdated. You think about a small business in town or indeed a family being asked to take on that sort of lift and a fixed cost when they're trying to manage a family, manage a small business and get ahead. It's very hard to swallow. So to base um, rates on valuations is an outdated mode that is sending producers broke. But he says he understands the need for a strong local government and says council and industry need to work together to find a solution. I think all members of the community want a strong local council. I haven't talked to any Ag Force member, any producer anywhere in Queensland who does not want a financially strong local council. The conversation we need to have is one around equity and sharing around how we can show everybody's strength uh, and we can show everybody's participation. But Mayor Andy Ireland says calculating rates is always a balancing act. And it's a message we quite often get. They ask, well, what do we get for, for our rates money?
I understand the argument and the sentiment and the feeling behind that, but then certainly um, I guess it's a perennial question and it's a perennial dilemma. And you ask any mayor right across Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, et cetera, and uh, you'll, they'll tell you that they get the same question from rural breakpayers uh, versus their residential counterparts. Livingston Shire Council Mayor Andy Ireland finishing that story from Pat Hegney. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. The harvest of oyster farmers is always at the mercy of Mother Nature, particularly after a devastating bushfire. Over two years on, oyster farmers across New South Wales are still dealing with burnt debris washing into the rivers. A new study looking into the impacts of the black summer bushfires on estuaries is still recording toxic elements in river systems. Farmers on the south south coast who are particularly hard hit are concerned about what future fire seasons may hold for them. Fatima Alumi has this story. Farming oysters is hard work. For Bateman's bay grower Rick Christensen, it's the disasters that push him to the brink. The actual fire came to this corner. So the embers blew across from the other side of the river. So it's probably about 500 metres. That's how quick it was going. Mr Christensen says good farming all starts with good water quality. Our testing monitors the river. So if there's any something that's out of the irregular, that's not normally there, we pick it up in our testing and then our coordinator would close the river. Since the black summer bushfires, that's happened more times than he can remember. Because the ash going into the water, the hot embers and things of that nature, it took a lot of the oxygen out of the water. If there's no oxygen in the water, they can't live. Heavy rain later washed debris into local rivers, where some of it still remains. I went into my savings to buy more infrastructure to hold these oysters, because usually these oysters would be gone eaten in a restaurant. But because of the fires, and then we had the flood, and then we had the COVID, we've all had to hang on to these oysters and try and keep them alive. Audrey Thors also farms along the Clyde River. Her stock was completely destroyed. So a little tap tells me whether they're they're alive or not. These are the old bags that have been through the fire and the flood. There's still charcoal, the burnt sticks. Every time we pull a tray out, it's just smothered in debris. It's not supposed to look as bad as this. It's supposed to look fairly clean. Four million of her oysters are yet to be harvested. And she says they're six months behind in their growth. We're moving our focus away from farming oysters and putting our focus on pulling logs out of the river and constantly heating logs that are totally submerged with the props of our boat. It's costing us so much money and we're not selling oysters. It's been a nightmare and, um, you know, 30 years I've been here and this is the worst it's been this last since the fires. It's just been terrible and financially really damaging. Researchers are trying to find out how estuaries respond when bushfires burn right up to their banks. Immediately after the fires, pyrogenic carbon levels in the Clyde and Maruya rivers in the south coast were nearly nine times higher than normal. Tayan Barros is the lead author in a University of New South Wales study looking into this. We know that that increase of bushfire material thus can affect the turbidity of the area, so that affects the future feeding animals like oysters and mussels. 
and it can also impact the survival, reproduction and behaviour of several species. But many growers are too invested in the industry to do anything else. I think it's just part of the natural cycle of things and we've just got to learn to sort of live with it. Fatima Alumi reporting there from Batemans Bay in New South Wales. With their fluffy faces and knee-high woollen boots, Australian baby doll Southdown sheep are taking the hobby farm and vineyard worlds by storm. Deb Ryans and her husband Jeff have bred these unique-looking sheep in Pinjara in Western Australia since around 2010. Their picturesque property is now home to around 120 of these super cute animals. Ellie Honeybone has this story. When Deb Royans decided to start breeding Southdown baby doll sheep, she didn't realise they would take off in popularity. I was looking around for a breed of sheep. I've had sheep before, probably for about 20 years now, um, mostly merinos and dorpers. So I was looking for a really unique-looking little breed, one that I could get into um, showing um, as a stud and one that we could bring through the colour because it's really something we was really very interested in. So we looked around and um, saw this breed. There wasn't very many of them around at that time. And uh, the name Baby Doll Southdown wasn't official at that time. They were just called Southdown. And um, so I thought I was looking for a really small, docile, easy-to-handle animal that um, would appeal to the public and uh, to the wider market. So we went for Baby Dolls. Mm. Um, after a lot of research, that's what we, we picked up. Being a British breed, um, they came over to Australia in the 1790s. They had the wool on their faces. So they got woolly faces, woolly legs, um, wool on their ears, wool around the bridge of their nose. And that's what's carried on. In Australia, we mostly breed animals that have got clean faces and clean legs to fit our Australian conditions. So the Baby Dolls managed to survive all this time with their management of the woolly faces and, and that, which is what people want these days. Uh, they're looking at something a little bit different and, uh, and they don't seem to mind it. She's now become the only registered breeder of black baby dolls in Australia. I'm probably the only one who's got to this stage, uh, the first one, to, to, to make the purebred coloured registered stud uh, baby doll Southdown in Australia at this time. But there's plenty of others um, coming up through the ranks. So what exactly are Southdown baby doll sheep used for? Deb explains that in addition to meat, baby dolls are a highly sought-after family pet, hobby farm addition and vineyard lawnmower. So they go as the stud. So a lot of people are registering as a as stud these days. Um, a lot of new breeders are interested in, in being a stud breeder. So that makes up most of our market. And then they've got wineries and vineyards. They're looking for a small... Um, animal, one that's um, compact but can't reach the vines. So the baby doll being only under the 60 centimetres, 60, 62 centimetres, fits that that perfectly for them because they're not a very tall breed, they're a miniature sheep. And um, then we've made up with uh, pets and uh, tourism. A lot of people want to have them f- to showcase them at their tourist and accommodations. And then there's the hobby farmers. Um, small markets, people just uh, small acreages, wanting a small little lamb, 
small little sheep that they can handle easily on, on five acre lots. This breed could easily take on the title of Australia's cutest sheep with fluffy old man faces and knee-high furry Ugg boots occurring naturally when they are lambs. Deb calls them the Benjamin Button sheep and also the Labradors of the sheep world. It's a, it's a great, this is a great little breed. I'm really happy with it. It's very docile, easy to handle and uh, they're just a fantastic uh, little breed to, to, to go on with. listen to that it's pretty cute and they are very cute to look at I'm quite taken with them you can tell I come from a sheep breeding family that was Ellie Honeybone out and about with the Australian baby doll Southdown sheep and if you want to take a look at them with their little Uggs and their little furry faces head to Australia Wide's webpage and that's Australia Wide for this Monday I'm Sinead Mangan I hope you have a lovely evening cheerio You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.